when you eat and we think about your triglycerides, they are going to rise within a handful of minutes, maybe even stay elevated for hours after eating. They tend to kind of oscillate on their own in relation to your hunger. So for instance, if I sit down all day long and I eat the same bite of food every 30 minutes or so, I did this and I did this with a couple of friends in, in school and I write down every time I feel hungry, maybe rate it on a scale every half an hour, as well as take a triglyceride measurement that often. You'll actually see when you get hungrier, maybe representative of your ghrelin hunger hormone, your trigs will be a little lower. When you're feeling uh, relatively satiated, your trigs are a little higher. And so you can think about this as your body having naturally oscillated over the day, releasing a little bit more energy into your bloodstream. So it isn't just the food, it's also the timing and the recent context of you might not even be thinking about it, but what you did yesterday. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. We talk often about blood markers, blood panels, labs. Why do people need to know what's happening with the different molecules in their body in real time? Well, there are so many different molecules to monitor. And so Azure Grant, part of our research team, she and I sat down and discussed what are some of the markers that people should pay attention to? How can they think about them and what is the importance? Things like fasting insulin. It's a very important marker for people to understand what is happening with it in their body in real time. Other things like lipid particle size, cytokines, CRP, cortisol, the list goes on. Even when you talk about women's health, things like estrogen, progesterone, these are all very important in the cycle of fertility. And these change over time as women go through different stages of life. When it comes to metabolic health, some of these hormones and biomarkers are in constant fluctuation and they change depending on the lifestyle factors that we have in front of us. They change and the way that we metabolize food, the way food affects our health, is in constant fluctuation depending on lifestyle factors and the way in which these other markers play into them. Anyway, it was a great conversation where we went into all of these ideas around what should you measure, how often should you measure it, why is it necessary, and how can people think about it moving forward. It's a great conversation to jam with Azure. Here's where we kick things off. So one of the things we should get into is this idea of blood work. And it's a product that we started offering last fall. So uh, fall of 2021. And we had started experimenting with it internally as a team in May, uh, the spring of 21. And the idea was very much aligned with this idea of biological observability and something we've started talking more about. Um, Josh is notorious for saying glucose isn't a panacea and a lot of advisors do the same thing where it's a great molecule to understand how like what are the implications of having higher low glucose levels and how does it impact your metabolic health but it is in isolation it is one factor it's like measuring the gas in the tank of your car and saying my car is doing great and so we wanted to give people more insight into like what is blood work why does it matter and how can people go 
um, go about paying attention to all these different biomarkers. So I thought it'd be good to get into what are some of the most important markers that people can pay attention to in addition to glucose. And then we'll go through um, some of the factors like what it means if one of the molecules is high or low, and we can just sort of riff on all these different things. So again, there's no agenda. Some of them we might go deep, others we might uh, be pretty shallow in depth, but we'll take it as it is and start hammering away. Sounds great. Um, so I think Levels overall takes this approach to blood work of doing exactly what you said, saying we already provide a continuous metric that is super important, blood glucose, but blood glucose doesn't tell you everything about metabolic health. So we offer also a lipid panel um, that gives you some of the major players that tell you about liver function, insulin in your pancreas, and uh, what's contributing to these blood glucose levels that you see. And then we also offer uh, a measure of inflammation called CRP. And these are, I think, a nice broad brushstrokes picture of someone's metabolic health. There's also a whole bunch of things that we could get into that were, you know, kind of dream metrics to have in the future that have more to do with uh, reproductive axis hormones, thyroid, things like uh, stress or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis like cortisol. And all of these things contribute to the overall picture of health. Um, so our panel is really, I think, just the first step. But all of these are super important. The wild thing is we often compare the dashboard of a car or we compare the uh, number of sensors that a, an airplane or a rocket will have. And it's kind of alarming to think, how many sensors does a human have? And it's like maybe one, maybe up to 10. Like if somebody's a, like a big wearables nerd, they might have a ton. But when you compare it to something like a rocket, like a rocket has 10,000 or more sensors, right? Even I think the new Airbus airplanes right. have like 193K total. I think they have 10K on their wings alone. And so you go like, this doesn't wow. make sense, right? As far as monitoring what's happening in real time. If you take it to the body, like there's, 50,000, roughly 50,000 markers, and the number gets pretty big, but 50,000 that we can start to think, hmm, we could mark all of those in real time. Now, we're not going to because there are multiple combinations of proteins and hormones and like the list goes on. But 50,000, like, what is that? That's a number of people that fit in the Stanford Stadium. Like, imagine trying to track every single person in real time to be like, what movements are they doing now? It's just, it's wild. If you narrow it down, though, like, there's probably a hundred Hormones are, are a major, major one that we want to dig into. But in general, there's probably 100 markers that would give enough of a lens into overall health and wellness to provide a picture of saying, what is happening in real time and like, why do these matter? So let's hammer through some of them. Um, we'll get through things like insulin. We'll get through cortisol. We'll get through cytokine, CRP, um, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, uh, luteinizing hormone we'll get through all these and we'll talk loosely about them and uh see where we go so let's let's dig into fasting insulin so why is it important and how is it so directly linked to metabolic health so what is fasting insulin insulin does a lot it tells the body to store what you're not using right now so for instance when your liver is storing fat your pancreas has to start working harder um, and your pancreas normally talks first to your liver before it talks to anything else that's actually um, shunting out its products directly to it. So basically, if your fasting insulin is really, really low, that means that you are 
effectively telling your body to store what it needs to with a lower volume signal. And the, the problem in the body when insulin is really high, say when it's over 10, uh, is that it contributes to cell proliferation. And cell proliferation growth in a, a controlled manner in the right place at the right time is a really good thing. Say you're a kid or a growing teenager, you absolutely want to grow. But if you're an adult and it's, um, it's not the time to be growing, especially in places that you might associate in the body with cancer um, or in your brain, then you don't want a really high insulin um, signal all the time. So basically the uh, the standards for, for insulin are, if we can get it really, really low, that's a good thing. So for instance, if someone is a endurance athlete, if they're going out and riding their bike every day or uh, for a couple hours a day or a long distance runner, uh, they might have insulin levels under two, which are the low end of the measurement scale. But if someone's up around six or seven, that's pretty good. And then uh, once you get over 10, um, you want to make sure you start working on that. But basically we can measure glucose continuously. But what we think about when we measure glucose is, is not just how high is it, but, uh, but the more interesting question is how hard are we making our pancreases work right now? One of the interesting things around insulin, and we talk about this, how it's so directly related to glucose, we'll call it glucose variability, is sometimes you'll see... Actually, let's sort of riff deeply on this. This is very much a Dr. Lustig Rob, our good friend Rob, a hat tip to him. So he talks a lot about um, you can't judge a person by body type, nor should you, right? Because we all have different body types and somebody who might appear um, where they're not like air quotes, overweight. And you go, oh, that's a healthy person. There could be so many things going on. So let's use that as an example of, of um, <clears throat> somebody doesn't appear to be overweight. They have low glucose variability and they say like, great, I ate. Fruit Loops. I mean, this happened with my best friend when he was using levels. Uh, he was eating like Lucky Charms, just like absurd things, Dunkin' Donuts. Like he was sort of testing it out and he's saying, hey, I've got low glucose variability. And like the outlook is like, man, you've got very likely hyperinsulinemia. Like for sure, if I'm guessing, you probably have such a high level of fasting insulin that your body is now not reacting to glucose the same way. And so like that is to your point about growth, like that's a super dangerous zone to be in where it's you've got high, let's say you've got fasting insulin over 10. And it's like making your glucose levels look like they're relatively flat in oscillation. That's a huge flag. But you don't know, like if, you, if you're looking at glucose in isolation and you're saying, hey, look, like I'm doing okay, but the other marker is so far out that is super dangerous. And so there are all these downstream implications of it. And that's why it is the and as opposed to the um, or, or like in addition to it's not they're not uh, mutually exclusive thing. Like, this is something that you need to look at together. I think it's also something that if we could show to people live, uh, it could be a really powerful signal of, hey, even if my blood glucose looks pretty good, um, it looks like my body is working really, really hard going over time, um, sending out signals that it, it doesn't really need or that can be detrimental in other parts of the body in order to keep this one other marker in shape. And when we're blind to a metric, um, it's very easy to excuse ourselves or um, you know think we're doing a good job and everything is fine. Um, but it's absolutely important to see or to, to see things that can give us an, an indication of how insulin is working. So for instance, um, when there's a, a high sugar load, the liver uh, 
makes VLDL in response. Um, so that's like a, a good indication of how we're processing carbs, uh, basically turning that sugar into fat. And that particularly tends to offload as something called small, dense LDL, which is one of the things that contributes to heart disease. If you think of it as um, as a small particulate that's in, in the solution of your blood going through your, your vessels, uh, it's easier for that, that small, dense particulate to fall out of solution and, and start to clog up um, arteries. So... These are these are all related. Your your pancreas function, your your liver function, how your body takes in sugar um, versus how your body processes fat, and I I think it's the the reason that we need to have the blood work panel in addition to the the CGM signal. Um, and there are a whole bunch of interesting nuances about how do we interpret this um, this panel that we might take a handful of times a year in relation to something like a continuous signal. Because when we think about how we assess a single time point, it's a, it's a very different calculation compared to um, how we look at all of the fluctuations and, and complexity of the, of the CGM signal. Over time, like that's what matters, that single point in time, there could be so many reasons why that one marker is out. Like when I, when I had my blood work done, it was in New York in May, so May of this year. And the night before, like my fasting period of 12 hours was such a terrible lead in for, compared to my average, right? We went for dinner and had like very conscious about what the decisions that were made uh, to the point where my wife texted me and she's like, you remember like 9 PM, you got to be done. And I'm like, it's eight 56 desserts coming. Like it was just, we had pasta <laughs> and bread and dessert. And so like my fasting glucose was so much higher than what it nor I think it was like one Oh eight or something. I mean, it was just like so high because I was eating till 9 PM and had blood work at 9 AM the next morning. And you're like, of course it's right. going to be higher than average when the average is eating high fat, high protein. Um, relatively low carb diet that's like my personal diet and so i know my fasting level is usually going to be around like 90 ish right and so you're like well yeah that's the reason but point in time if that was the assessment at a doctor's office what would you think is going to happen it's like oh we're gonna like we're gonna monitor well pro actually not even at 108 but if it was like higher it would be like let's monitor this we might talk about metformin like we have to look into it and you're like no it's because i made a silly decision the night before i was doing something and that is only because i knew that like if you don't know these things then you make all of these you might make long-term decisions by not having awareness of like well that's why that happens so anyways that's a bit of a rant and a digression but you highlighted LDL. So why don't we get into HDL, LDL, and particle size that is integral for understanding all of these different lipid markers. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about the, the lipid panel. Um, well, first, let's step back from, from HDL and LDL and talk about cholesterol, because that might be the average person's entry point. It was certainly my entry point when I started trying to learn um, about metabolic health. Um, a handful of years back. And basically a, a total cholesterol marker is something that you're going to get at the doctor's office. It's, it's, I think of it as a freebie on our lipid panel. So basically it's something that represents the total of a bunch of good things, HDL, um, and a mixed bag of some good things and some bad things being LDL, uh, which contains a, a good and a bad, um, sub-distribution. So it's kind of a freebie. If your total cholesterol is really, really high, it's absolutely a signal to look deeper um, at the HDL and LDL uh, distributions. But overall, uh, total cholesterol is pretty hard to interpret, even though historically it's gained um, 
so much recognition as you know you'll you'll see cholesterol free foods uh, statins are incredibly powerful um in the united states as uh as an an influencer of, of recommendations so basically first thing is there's this total cholesterol marker it's got a, a really rich complicated history basically um if you see a strange total cholesterol number and it's really really high look deeper but take it as um with a, a hefty dose of salt overall first thing, because it's made up of some things that you want to be high and other things that you don't want to be high. If we look a little bit deeper into cholesterol, we have high density uh, lipoprotein cholesterol and low density lipoprotein cholesterol. Um, the first one, HDL or good cholesterol, you've probably heard of, uh, is something that helps take fat away from fat cells and to the liver uh, for processing or excretion. Um, and it's actually associated with better cardiovascular outcomes. Whereas LDL or low density cholesterol does the opposite, takes things to fat cells for storage, um, is overall associated with, I think it's around a, a third um, increase in risk of heart attack over your lifetime, so pretty decent. Um, and it's actually composed, we keep going down the rabbit hole, of, um, of two different categories of things. And that's because if we think of... Um, of these densities of lipoproteins, you're basically looking at, at little fatty globlets that have proteins in them, and they come in all different sizes. If you think about pouring some, some oil into um, a bowl with vinegar and you kind of shake it up, you're going to get droplets of all different distributions. And so that's what we're talking about here is how to bucket these, uh, these distributions into different categories. And so if we, if we talk about the, the LDL, um, we have a fluffier kind, and we have a stickier, smaller, I think of it as more grainy kind. And basically that small grainy kind, like we mentioned earlier, that has an easier time falling out of solution in the bloodstream and contributing to things like uh, inflammation and, and clogs and eventual uh, atherosclerosis. Whereas that, uh, that lighter sort of fluffier kind has an easier time kind of bumping through the bloodstream, um, getting shuttled along and, and not falling out of solution. So it turns out that Cholesterol, which we might just think of, of as one thing and want to reduce, is actually composed of things that we want to have, have quite high, HDL, um, almost the higher the better there, and LDL, where we mostly want to pay attention to, do we have small, dense LDL uh, at high levels, which is, um, which is a bad sign. So that's actually something I think would be really interesting uh, to offer in the future uh, would be lipid particle size distribution. It's, it's a pretty expensive assay right now and not offered super commonly. Um, or we have some other options that you can kind of use as a, a proxy to tell you some similar information. Yeah. And the key is understanding, how, like, like, it's one thing to see the data, right? So it's like, I see the data and we always say the so what and the now what. And especially when you're looking at data that is maybe a bit foreign. So this is new to, let's say, the average person. On average, people might not have looked as in-depth unless they've had a reason to at those numbers to really understand them. So it's the key is like, how did it get that way? Like, that's what we always want to figure out, whether it's high or low. It's like the reason it is at this level is because you eat really well or you exercise a lot or you do the, all of these different things. And when it comes to HDL and LDL, the key is understanding, hey, like you're doing pretty well because on average you eat a ton of olive oil. We'll just say a ton makes it sound like it's hyperbolic. You eat an appropriate 
an appropriate amount. The reason I laugh is like I eat way too much olive oil and always have my whole life uh, <laughs> on a daily basis, but it is enjoyable. But neither here nor there. Um, you eat an appropriate amount of olive oil on average every day. You eat things like walnuts. You eat all of these things that are contributing really healthy omega-3s. Or the other side of it is like you crush a ribeye steak every single day, seven days a week. It's like those are two drastically different outcomes when you start to talk about lipid particles and the type of cholesterol that <laughs> is in your body. And so, um, yeah, it's good to break that down. If you want to talk maybe a little bit about food and how food impacts health uh, from a lipid standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and maybe as a segue into that, I I want to call out something that you were talking about, about timing and recent context for your measurements. Um, because in some ways, it's also about the the steak you had last night and what you did this morning. And I think a lot of the reason that um, that people have trouble interpreting uh, these measurements or that you can go into the doctor, get one high measurement and, and potentially be prescribed a statin um, is A, because it's really easy to go into your fasted test, not fasted. And uh, I even, you know, when I was in college, I would say, ah, you know, I've been fasting for 10 hours, whatever, I'm gonna go get my blood tests, I don't mind. Um, but being in the fasted state actually really matters. Um, and it especially matters for the the last part of our panel that we haven't talked about as much yet, but triglycerides. So um, triglycerides are very acutely reactive to, to fat you eat. So if you're still processing food, uh, you're going to have elevated triglycerides um, compared to if you're truly fasted. So that's one thing. But um, but these metrics also vary quite a lot by time of day. So uh, if you're trying to decide when to get your your panel, not only should you get it in a context that's fairly reflective of your everyday life, um, like not the the day after you've gone out and had an, an unusually big meal with friends, you should actually get it, absolutely get it in the fasted state, um, truly at least 12 hours fasting. And then on top of that, I would say even try to get it at about the same time of day and um, same time since you woke up. Uh, and that has to do with not just the, the food reaction, but the circadian rhythm of things like cholesterol, um, all types of cholesterol, by the way, as well as triglycerides, which tend to rise across the morning and into the early afternoon. Uh, and that happens whether you're whether you're fasting all day long or whether you're you're eating. And these can be, you know, 30% changes, even uh, even more 40, 50 and above if you're if you're eating. So just as an aside to that, uh, and to lead into talking about how food affects these metrics is basically if you're if you're eating, uh, your lipids are gonna you're gonna go up. So, for instance, um, when you eat and you think about your your triglycerides, um, they are going to uh, to rise within a handful of minutes, maybe even stay elevated for for multiple hours after eating, um, and. Additionally, they they tend to kind of oscillate on their own in relation to your hunger. So, for instance, um, if I sit down all day long and I eat the same bite of food every thirty minutes or so, I did this and I did this with a couple of friends in, in school, uh, and I write down every time I feel hungry, maybe rate it on a scale every half an hour, as well as take a triglyceride measurement that often. You'll actually see 
um, when you get hungrier, uh, maybe representative of your ghrelin hunger hormone, uh, your trigs will be a little lower. When you're feeling uh, relatively satiated, your trigs are a little higher. And so you can think about this as your body having um, naturally oscillated over the day, releasing a little bit more energy into your bloodstream, um, kind of independent of what you're doing. So it it isn't just the food. It's also the um, the timing and the, the recent context of you might not even be thinking about it, but what you did yesterday. Yeah. So it's such an important thing to highlight with, especially with fasting, what what happens at a cellular level, let's say 10 hours fasted versus 16 or 18 hours or even 24. Like if you don't do the full 12, you're supposed to fast for 12 hours before blood work. Um, that difference, like especially in autophagy where your body is changing drastically in the way that it is starting to really clean itself out. And so you you eat a brick of cheese on nachos before, right? You went out with your friends, you ate the nachos with the cheese and all, like all of these things. Naturally, your blood work is going to not look great the next day. And it's that point in time. So lots of like lots of interesting takeaways in how we have to think about these things, because <clears throat> the the other side of it is if you don't now, actually, let's paint the picture. You should look at the numbers as is, but you should understand what has led up to it. You don't want to ignore certain data to be like, ah, it's because of that. Like you should still take it into account. But the other side of it is like maybe not anchoring too much if there are things that are throwing it off because it can be a little bit alarming and you don't want to, uh, you don't want to overreact or underreact. So overreaction is like, oh my gosh, uh, the extreme case is like, I need to go get this taken care of right now when it actually might not be as big an issue because you're like, no, that's like related to the brick of cheese on the nachos and all these things. So it's like having the the foundation of knowledge so that people can understand it and in a in an accessible way. That's one side. The other is like underreacting where you look at it, you're like, ah, I'm fine. Like that's that's also like we'll call it the air quotes like dad thing because I think like it's hilarious where I know my dad is that way. A lot of my friends' dads where it's like, nah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And you're like, no, you should probably look into that. Um, but yeah, it's, the, it's having a balanced view on like what it means. So it's it's really painting that picture of the, the now what. Let's go into this idea of cytokines. Uh, it is such an interesting thing because cytokines, well, you you go deep on this, but cytokines will allow people to understand, hey, my immune system is doing well. The caveat is like, if there is a huge surge, that might not be a good thing too. So we'll say a somebody goes into like septic shock. Well, you could actually forecast that beforehand because you're like, oh, that's a cytokine storm. You've got way too many of these proteins um, that are being marked right now. That is alarming. And like, you might know this, like in going into a state of sepsis, you might actually know this in advance right? Being able to see this is what, like, here is the trend line. So being able to monitor that in real time is hugely impactful in helping to save, like, save, really save lives or helping to mitigate some of the downstream implications. So why don't we go into cytokines, um, thinking through, like, why we should mark them and uh, even CRP when it comes to things like inflammation. Yes, absolutely. So if we talk about inflammation, um, we can A, talk about acute inflammation versus chronic inflammation. Um, and if we think about acute inflammation, that might be something like your CRP, pre-reactive protein, something that is elevated following elevations in cytokines. Um, that might show up as a little high on a blood test. If you've recently had a cold, 
if you've recently had COVID, um, if you've had a, a urinary tract infection, um, if, you know, it, it, it can go up for a lot of different reasons. So on one hand, I think of, um, of acute immune responses as your body doing its job. You actually want want that immune response if you if you've been sick recently, and if you see that on on a blood test, it's not really something to worry about if you recovered from your sickness later on. But chronic inflammation is a different story. So um, chronic inflammation, either from an autoimmune disease, think of Crohn's disease, uh, the whole family of irritable bowel, very common and increasingly common. Um, or if you think of uh, other things like Hashimoto's, uh, there's a, a wide family of autoimmune diseases that are also on the rise in the U.S., uh, even more prevalent in women. And um, these result in chronic inflammation throughout the body, which is um, a stress signal and, uh, and is, is going to lead to more tissue damage um, and is, is absolutely something to worry about. So I think it's another reason to take recent context into account when getting blood work done, where if you've gotten your blood work and, um, and today was a representative day, you feel pretty much how you feel every day, um, and you see a, a high CRP, then, um, then that's a reason to worry. Whereas if you've, if you've recently been sick, then don't worry about it so much. But you talked about um, cytokines, um, and we also think a lot about interleukins as things that we would want to measure continuously. And if in the future we could wave our magic wand and be able to measure inflammation continuously um, in the blood, uh, then that would give us an option to probably learn a ton more, A, about continuous immune regulation uh, and to do things like see if we are sensitive to foods that we might not register that we're, that we're sensitive to yet. Because um, imagine that something uh, within our microbiome reacts poorly to a food that we've just eaten, we might really not, um, not sense the acute immune reaction, um, but we could still theoretically pick it up in our body. So I think there's, um, I think there's a big difference between what we can do with immune markers that are taken on quarterly blood work, um, and then potentially in the future to use, um, acute immune response to be able to understand how our behavior is interacting with our physiology. And you could imagine um, things like an inflammatory response to a really stressful situation that you got in throughout your day, not just to, to having eaten something or, you know, uh, acute uh, elevation in immune markers as a result of not sleeping well for the last week. Um, and those are the kind of changes that I think would be really impactful for, um, for helping people tune their actions um, and like have that you know, more sympathetic response, uh, not in terms of the autonomic nervous system, but in terms of emotionally sympathetic response uh, to what they're they're doing every day. Yeah, we know that that chronic inflammation compounds like that's where a lot of these downstream um, downstream health complications come from is this compounding of chronic inflammation over time. And it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And so understanding that, like having some flag to say, hey, here's how I should start to adapt or change what I'm doing so that it doesn't get to the point where it's just, it's something that is past the point of being able to make a huge difference. And you have to start talking about different kind of health interventions. So um, that gets back to this whole foundation of like why we should care about paying attention to markers in real time, multiple markers in addition to glucose. One of them yeah. that is interesting is, and this comes up very frequently, is the Dawn effect, right? And so you had brought up talking about um, talking about 
the way that our autonomic autonomic system will adapt in sleep states versus states when we're awake and so why don't we go into this idea of like how does cortisol play into all of this not just when we are waking up and like what actually happens physiologically in our body but also cortisol uh to, i think to actually let's let's like riff on this for a sec cortisol is an interesting one because if we pair it apart so we parse it into like two things we associate cortisol with being bad like heightened cortisol and it's like not actually because we it is associated so like cortisol equals stress we'll just say like colloquially cortisol equals stress and it's like well there's also you stress which is a positive form of stress where you want that with let's say athletic performance you want a high level of you stress because that's going to put you into the state where it's like you are ready to go and you're firing on all cylinders right whereas you can have high levels of cortisol that uh that are we'll call it bad stress again keeping it pretty colloquial but bad stress where it's like no you don't want to have a heightened state of cortisol so it's understanding like where is cortisol helping us and where is it maybe prohibiting us from having uh, a balanced state of health i think cortisol is one of the um cortisol probably along with lh are, are some of the best examples um to give people to think about context to think about biological rhythms at the hour to hour time scale versus the daily time scale, um, which is relevant when you when you mentioned the dawn effect or um, or circadian rises in cortisol. Um, but let's just talk step back and talk a little bit about what cortisol is, um, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and then how to interpret it based on different contexts. So Cortisol is something that's regulated, like we said, both on a, a daily time scale. So once every 24 hours or circadian rhythm, um, it actually tends to rise uh, pretty notably across the morning. This is um, also called the cortisol awakening response. It's part of how if we uh, we don't have to use an alarm, this is one reason I don't like to use alarm clocks. Uh, it allows you to, to wake up naturally. Um, and, and that's why I actually think of it and, um, and I think a lot of people tend to think of it this way as a, an awakeness or an arousal hormone rather than a, a stress hormone. Um, so it's something that helps us feel awake, alert, and ready to mobilize energy stores and do what we need to do. So it has this, this prominent rise in the morning, but then it doesn't actually stay smooth all day long. It doesn't look like a, a sine wave or a smooth wave on the ocean. It actually has these pulses. Um, so it's called a pulsatile hormone, and they happen every hour, couple of hours, um, they'll actually happen in the absence of us doing much else. Um, so it's it's regulated this way all the way up to the level of the the brain. And then these pulses uh, are are both you know generated on their own and they're able to react to what's happening in our environment. So court is one of these ones where uh, if you saw that your your court was pretty high for a little while, that might be absolutely nothing to worry about. Um, and so it, it brings up this difference between thinking about an acute elevation, so a spike that comes up and goes back down, and a baseline elevation, wherein the uh, the resting level of court, or let's say the big wave on top these on top of which these little waves ride, once that starts coming up, that's a bad thing. So imagine if you are going along in your everyday life, um, you're doing things that require you to mobilize energy stores, um, like you're getting ready to go and do some exercise, go for a walk, you're getting ready to like this, uh, come in and do a podcast recording that we have to be alert and paying attention for. Um, 
and we're interspersing that with times of rest. So we're going to see cortisol go up and down for that. But let's say um, we have uh, an event that is very stressful emotionally or physically that we're having trouble coming down from. Um, and so that could be something like social stress, maybe a, a fight with a family member, a really bad meeting, um, or you know, kind of exercising yourself to the point of exhaustion. These are things that can keep cortisol elevated for a long time because you're still needing to mobilize your mental and physical resources. And that kind of condition, if, um, if maintained for a long enough time, that's really bad. And that leads to overall elevations in cortisol or eventually to, um, to even adrenal fatigue. Uh, and that kind of chronic elevation is the kind of thing that if you were to go and take a blood test, you had already have had to gotten had to have gotten to that chronic elevation state in order to absolutely consistently pick up that elevation of a blood test. Um, and I say all this not just for the sake of cortisol, but because I think these principles apply to a lot of the different um, molecules that we're interested in measuring. And if you're someone who wears a CGM, then you might have been listening along to talking about cortisol, thinking, hey, like this actually seems uh, quite similar to how I think about my spikes when I look at my glucose data. Um, so there's a, there's a lot in there, both in terms of how this acutely reacts to the actions we take in our everyday life. Short-term elevations are not so bad, but longer-term chronic elevations um, can lead to baseline elevations over long periods of time, um, and that those are the things that are bad and that we we'll want to catch before we might be able to catch them on a blood test. Yeah, and, and cortisol is, uh, is very interesting because <clears throat> people are starting to see a link without measuring it through things like their CGM data. So they'll say like you associate the event where people have a spike. Let's let's make an assumption. Uh, a person didn't eat anything um, like they haven't eaten for let's say a four or six hour window, like some amount of time that's long enough where you should have. And they didn't eat something that would give them a spike. They're not oscillating. It's like relatively average stable glucose. And then they see a spike and like, what happened? I was like sitting watching something and what it was is like they were watching the new england patriots game and like that gave them a cortisol spike which ended up in a glucose spike because their sympathetic system was kicked in with the fight or flight response where it's like oh you had a heightened level of cortisol because you were you were so invested in this thing same thing happens with exercise where it's like oh that the reason you're getting and people see much when i say spike related to watching a game Everyone's going to have a different response. Some people might be neutral. Some people might be yeah, have a massive spike, but you're not going to see these like ridiculous spikes that would be the same as exercise where somebody is pushing very, very hard and they say, holy smokes, like I had a huge spike. Well, that's because you um, you push it where cortisol kicked in. You had uh, a bunch of your stored glucose in your liver was dumped back into this, your bloodstream. So it's like, hey, here's your energy source. There we go, right? Lots going on there. But we also see things like glucose spikes associated with cortisol that don't have to do with flighters, fight or flight, stumbling on my words here, but have to do with those stressful events. So you highlighted somewhere it could be like uh, a disagreement or maybe a bad meeting or something that you're about to report a, record a podcast. Other times it's like I had this thing and it's because like your kids are fighting over an iPad or something. It's like that raises our cortisol. And so it's that is acute. But what we don't want to have is this heightened sense of or this heightened state of uh, cortisol over time, because that's going to impact so many other markers. And that leads to like this is where it's such a full circle of uh, chronic inflammation related to other markers being out, because this one like you it's all so interconnected. And so the key is to make sure that we understand how to have uh, 
relatively stable markers across the board so that nothing is really like if one is elevated or i shouldn't say elevate because they can all mean different things at different levels uh out of range is a better that is the scientific way of saying it uh if if they are out of range that is something where we want to pay attention because that uh over time they will all they're also interconnected so it's like the oil is out in your car well then you've got engine failure and then like your gas is low in your car and you can't drive anymore and it's the same thing with the body why don't we go into women's health it is a very very wide topic to go into it's something that you have deep expertise in and have spent all of your time studying and so uh let's go into estrogen progesterone and luteinizing hormone and talk through why don't we talk through it in in respect to fertility uh we'll talk through it in respect to some of the health considerations and then also later stage when women are going through menopause so like how some of these hormones will change and tied into um tied into diet and how when these hormones oscillate every month depending on stage of life how that changes physiologically the way that you're uh metabolizing different food and the way that you can think about even things like exercise so lots lots of things to go into let let's start with estrogen um why don't we actually let's do this let's start let's go through each of the hormones like what exactly they are and how they tie into women's health so start with estrogen okay uh estrogen progesterone and then lh i think are some of the most valuable hormones that uh, that one could measure continuously, and we should we should definitely talk about testosterone um, as well for guys. Even though you know men and women both have uh, testosterone, estrogen, and 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 so forth, uh, just in relatively different concentrations. And the reason that I think these hormones are so interesting and important uh, to think about measuring at high frequencies um, is because they change in a very structured, patterned way, both in response to everyday life activities um, and response in response to endogenous biological rhythms. And those changes have very strong impacts on metabolic and overall health. So maybe that's the first take-home point um, with something like estrogen is Estrogen level is not just about um, when you want to have kids and family planning. Um, it's actually, especially for, for women, a marker of overall health. And let's talk a little bit about the patterning of how estrogen changes over time. So one theme I think we've had today is that for many, many markers, including markers that we would traditionally just measure once every quarter or so on a blood panel, uh, time of day is really important time of day or circadian rhythms are something that show up in um, most every system across the body, including estrogen. And uh, these rhythms actually couple across different systems. So many of them change uh, in the same direction at the same time, um, or at least in a, in a phase-locked manner. So estrogen tends to, to rise across the morning like cortisol we talked about, and um, and actually a bunch of different hormones, believe it or not, um, estrogen's uh, upstream uh, hormone, luteinizing hormone from the pituitary uh, is actually extremely pulsatile as well and one of the most studied pulsatile hormones. So if we think about that wave of estrogen coming up in the mornings, it has these little pulses every um, one to four hours that, that right on top. And if we zoom out even a level bigger, so, so far we have very little waves within the day riding on top of daily rhythm waves. Uh, we have the waves of estrogen that are probably most familiar to all of us from maybe high school health class, which is the ovulatory menstrual cycle. 
And within that cycle, basically, estrogen rises across the first many days. Uh, once it gets high enough, it triggers several reactions in the body that uh, encourage an, an egg to be released. Uh, and then estrogen falls. And then in the latter part of the cycle, uh, if an egg is successfully released um, during a phase called the, the luteal phase, estrogen rises again a little bit and falls back down. So uh, overall, estrogen is a hormone that has these layered rhythms on top of each other. What's interesting about this is that estrogen actually helps lower blood glucose lower body temperature, lower heart rate, raise heart rate variability. Uh, and those start to be things that we can tie into um, to how we feel um, and what we perceive every day. So one practical way this, uh, this shows up that um, we've talked a lot about at levels is that insulin sensitivity um, is a little bit higher during the first part of the ovulatory cycle when estrogen tends to be um, much higher. And insulin sensitivity tends to be um, a little bit lower. So uh, carb toleration isn't quite as good during this latter part of the cycle where estrogen remains at relatively lower levels. And so I think this is actually a really interesting topic for, for research to go into later is to what extent does changing the way a person eats by phase of cycle impact how they feel, impact um, the glucose volatility that we see? Um, and is that a, a viable solution that should be more commonly recommended? I think things like... Um, ketogenic diet or, you know, nutrient rich, but relatively processed carb reduced diets during the luteal phase, um, lower estrogen phase in particular, um, they're super interesting. And I think we should, we should talk about them more. Um, so that's estrogen in a nutshell. Uh, you want to talk about progesterone in a nutshell? Yeah, let's, let's go into that. And we should, <clears throat> we should tie it into pregnancy as well. Um, maybe we'll do that after because there's so much that happens during pregnancy uh, from a metabolic health standpoint because there's so much going on hormonally where the way food affects your health is completely different than when you aren't pregnant, right? So let's like, we'll, we'll shelf it for a sec, but let's go into progesterone. So what exactly, um, how, how it contributes to fertility during women's cycles, how it prepares the uterus for uh, fertilization of the egg and all these things. So let's go into that and then we'll get into LH. Absolutely. So progesterone um, is something that is maintained at relatively low levels um, until around the time when an egg is released. So during the first part of the cycle, we talked about estrogen being the dominant hormone, it rising, um, it actually having these pulses um, those pulses get faster and faster leading up to the ovulation event, helping trigger it. And then what? So around the time when an egg is getting ready to be released, um, the ovaries um, and even the brain actually start to make a little more of this hormone progesterone. Um, progestation uh, makes it kind of easy to remember. It has to do with, uh, with getting the body ready to potentially host a baby for a long time. Um, but progesterone also raises local inflammation. Uh, and that's local both around the ovaries and overall. So uh, if you're someone who has tracked basal body temperature or uh, used a wearable to track your temperature over time, you'll notice that it starts to relatively increase um, during the periovulatory phase and especially um, after ovulation is complete. So after an egg is is released, there's a, a little piece of tissue that the egg came out of the ovary in called the, the luteal body, and that may, starts to make more and more progesterone across the latter part of the cycle um, called the luteal phase. Um, and that ramp up is looks you know very proportional to a ramp up that you see in um, 
in body temperature, as well as a ramp down in things like heart rate variability. And in addition to that, um, that higher level of progesterone um, is associated with a little bit worse insulin sensitivity. So um, I think this is definitely something to to look at um, if someone is wearing a CGM is to see if your spikes are getting a little bit worse during that luteal phase. And if they improve um, with the onset of menses, which is a time when progesterone is, is quite rapidly falling off in preparation for the next cycle. Um, and I think to, to tie that all together, um, we should talk a little bit about LH because LH, maybe that would be easier to do first even, but LH is sitting upstream of both estrogen and progesterone. And one thing that's interesting about it is the way that it is released in particular, the, the patterns of its release can tell you a lot about what estrogen and progesterone are doing. So um, in our reproductive system, we call it the, the hypothalamic pituitary uh, gonadal or HPG axis. Um, LH sits at the pituitary level um, and it's released and something we've talked about a lot so far is the very pulsatile fashion, um, meaning every uh, one to four hours-ish, it gets a big pulse and then it goes back down to where it was. Um, those pulses are actually regulated um, within the brain via interactions between the hypothalamus and potentially uh, even the dopaminergic system, which is kind of a whole separate interesting side story. But basically what LH does is it travels through the brain stream and communicates to the ovaries, hey, it's time to release um, estrogen or progesterone, depending on the phase of cycle. And one of the ways that this uh, that this gets communicated is in how fast those little pulses are. So LH pulses faster and faster leading up to ovulation, then gets a big wave called the LH surge, which is the context that uh, most people, if they've heard of LH, have, um, have maybe used one of these little pre-ovulation tests um, where you can see if this hormone is very, very high enough to trigger ovulation or not. Um, and then after that ovulatory event, this hormone LH slows down a lot once to every three or four hours of pulsing um, and then does that for much of the rest of the cycle. So the point is here, if, if one could wave a magic wand and measure LH, uh, you could actually learn a lot about when ovulation was coming, when uh, it was about to happen via that surge, and when via those slowed down pulses, when it had already happened and you're progressing through the rest of the cycle. Um, and you can only know that really if you were measuring it continuously. So LH is something that I think about for if I wanted a, a proxy for what's going on with estrogen, if I wanted a proxy for ovulation, um, and if I wanted a proxy for when ovulation had successfully happened, um, and then downstream of that, wanted to make some assumptions about what was happening with insulin sensitivity for women, um, I, I would think about looking at those at those patterns. And that's uh, you're probably starting to get a a sign of this by now, but I think that those high frequency patterns carry a ton of information that um, that are going to end up being really important for how we interpret most uh, continuous biomarkers. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's there is so much to dig into with it, and the, the idea with fertility it's it's so interesting because the window is very small, right? So it's like when we talk about uh, the period in which women can actually get pregnant, it's that narrow window where if you're able to track LH, where you can see, you're like, oh, I can see what is happening. And then that becomes a window. And so without this insight, it becomes a lot harder to say, like you're, you are, it is possible to, uh, to monitor 
not in real time, but to monitor certain um, certain elevations in hormones right now. But it gets a lot. It's you're having to put in the work. It's so much harder than what actually happens. So typically, the women that I know and the women that are in my life, whether it's friends, whether it's family members, in general, you, if they want to get pregnant and their family planning, it's timed based on cycle. And so you're trying your best with things like there's the tracking apps, but it's still not going to be perfect because there's too many things that are fluctuating as far as these hormonal levels. And so you're doing your best to try to time things, but it's still not perfect by any means. And if you miss that window, you miss the window, right? And it gets really hard. And so having the ability to, um, from a fertility perspective alone, having the ability to track things like LH, things like progesterone, things like estrogen in real time, you're going to be able to monitor what you want to monitor and get the insight that you want a lot easier. I mean, I think we should just come out and say that cycle tracking, for the most part, is still stuck with like 100-year-old technology. Mm -hmm. um, it's stuck with, uh, at the most basic level, looking at day of cycle, which is absolutely not uh, an accurate way to understand when you're ovulating or understand um, the portion of the cycle leading up to and including the time of ovulation during which a person can become pregnant. Um, and then when you layer on top of that something like oral temperature, which is what, uh, you know, natural cycles is approved as a, as a birth control method. If you do this very laborious thing every morning at exactly the right time, you're going to get kind of a shaky but decent signal. Um, if you use any version of a single time point temperature measurement, um, we haven't really talked about this, but basically estrogen lowers temperature, progesterone um, plus estrogen raises temperature. Um, basically, those measurements are single time points, and they are never going to give you as much as a continuous signal can. So really, for fertility, um, the value is in the continuity of the signal, um, because it's for making predictions, it's all about looking not just at the the level of a hormone or the level of a proxy measure. It's about looking at the pattern of change over time um, and the frequency of um, of these biological rhythms within the day. Those are what allow you to make strong predictions. Um, and those combined with the levels of the hormones are what are going to allow you to also confirm that something like ovulation has happened. So I, I think that's one of the most exciting things about um, continuous reproductive hormone measurement is to be able to truly do family planning for the first time in a way that doesn't place all of the onus on uh, on the individual self-tracker trying to do a perfect job measuring a signal that you cannot capture everything important about using a single time point measurement. Um, and this even, I think we should flip this on its head and think about glucose because uh, as we've talked about, uh, estrogen lowers glucose and progesterone raises it. I think one thing that we should absolutely explore is the more continuous interaction between uh, blood glucose as a measurement and something like a uh, high frequency estrogen measurement. Because imagine if every time uh, a person got a little pulse of estrogen, they got a little local decrease in blood glucose. Uh, you know, how, um, how effectively do you imagine maybe a person could look just at their glucose signal and given the proper view, be able to tell something about the phase of ovulatory cycle that they're in? Um, I think that would be super cool. And we haven't even talked about um, pregnancy or lactation yet uh, and the interesting patterns that might show up there. But yeah, I, I think fertility is one of these key fields where basically people are still relying on the equivalent of, um, of blood work 
or single time point measurements uh, when you can absolutely rely more on a continuous measurement from the periphery or hopefully in the future from um, blood work on the hormones themselves. I think you just signed yourself up for another episode. We might have to do one on pregnancy in general because fascinating what happens. Um, Sounds great. We'll shelf that one. Um, wh why don't we go into high and low levels of LH? Because that is an interesting thing to give people insight. So when people are going through uh, ovulation, you're going to see increased levels of LH. Now, let's say somebody is outside of a window of fertility but they've got these high levels of LH. That's, that's a bit of a flag where you go, wait, I'm outside of like my cycle when it should be high. So the indication is if depending on stage of life, you could be, if you got high levels of LH, like abnormally high, you could be in a state, uh, you could be perimenopausal or going through menopause. That's one flag. The other is like, you could have PCOS, you could have a pituitary disorder. Like there are these flags. And so it's important to look into this to say, hmm, What's happening, like if you are seeing this and you're tracking it over time, these are things where you can now start to action or take action based on the insight that you get. So we've got that. And then we also know that low levels of LH could mean also pituitary disorder, or there could be things like malnutrition or you're under stress or there are all these interlinked things. So being able to monitor that, like that's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting thing that can help a lot of women with their holistic health. Absolutely. Um, it's great that you bring up PCOS and menopause. Um, you know, obviously very different states that one can be in, but with respect to LH, they actually share some things. It's it's not just that the levels of LH are elevated in PCOS and, and elevated around menopause, um, but one of the ways they get elevated is those pulses that we talked about. So those pulses get even faster and faster um, in PCOS and menopause. It's almost like um, the brain or the, you know, the hypothalamus where this, this pulse generator called the arcuate pulse generator sits, um, is saying, Hey, please, you know, we, we need our hormones to do the right thing. Um, we need to try to get ourselves to ovulate successfully, which is something that's not often happening in, in PCOS cycles. Um, and in menopause, you know, the, the person is transitioning to a time in which they're, uh, they're not able to ovulate anymore and they're going longer and longer between menstrual periods um, or having more and more anovulatory cycles. And so part of that, the brain's and the pituitary's response to this is to say, hey, we really want to make more of this signal that should be telling our body, please ovulate. If we go a little bit deeper into PCOS, I think this one is really important because of the, the tie-ins that it has with metabolic health for women and because of its prevalence. Um, so PCOS is something that might affect somewhere approaching around a quarter of women. Um, and for various reasons that have to do with a number of different kinds of tests and providers um, involved in getting a diagnosis, it's something that can take a, a long time to diagnose. And actually, the longer that time to diagnosis, um, the, the worse likelihood or the, let's say, the increased chances of going on to develop something like type 2 diabetes. So in PCOS, uh, not only do we have the, these LH uh, responses that are high levels, high pulses, trying to, to help the body ovulate, um, but it also seems like there are uh, high levels of androgens and also a degree of, of metabolic dysfunction, in particular insulin resistance. So uh, what one could imagine down the line is that we could use additional hormone testing, and maybe in this case, it could be something like 
uh, LH to look at signs of ovulatory dysfunction combined with something like continuous testosterone testing to look for um, elevated androgens and maybe improve the time to diagnosis for something like this. Um, and similarly for, for menopause, one of the, the big challenges that, that I mean, I've, I've read about and, and have heard expressed by, by family members and friends um, is that perimenopause, so the time at which uh, overall sex hormone levels across ovulatory cycles are getting a little bit lower and lower, um, cycles are tending to get a bit shorter, and this person is heading towards a time where they will stop ovulating. That can be a time when, when symptoms start to emerge, um, when insulin sensitivity gets worse, when people start having uh, things like vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes and night sweats. And there's not a whole lot of guidance for this, um, for this process experientially. There's also not a whole lot of guidance on um, when exactly a person could start something like bioidentical hormone replacement therapy or, or when they would take it. Um, it's it's well known that the the kind of sooner that you start taking um, exogenous sex steroids, if you take them in the right way and they're um, they're form formulated the right way, uh, the better the outcome. But you know another use for for continuous um, sex hormone measurement in the future could be saying, hey, we have watched you as an individual over years uh, progress across your ovulatory cycles as you've gotten older. Um, we're seeing them destabilize. We're seeing you ovulate less and less frequently. And we think you're headed towards menopause. So now, before you, maybe years before you would have intervened before, uh, we're going to get you talking to a, a clinician um, about how you want to manage the state, whether or not you want to take uh, bioidenticals, you know, how you might want to change your diet, maybe to a, a lower carb, um, you know, but still very nutritious lifestyle and, and all of that. So um, it's a lot about prevention and, and early diagnosis. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to dig into with it. And when especially when women are going through menopause and things like even progesterone is changing too, like that's helping to regulate blood pressure. So if you've got low levels, like we, that's where having the insight to say, Hey, here's what is going to allow you to make the right choices or to adapt your, adapt your lifestyle choices, adapt your diet, adapt your exercise, your sleep, all of these things, hugely, hugely beneficial in overall long-term health, right? Because it's everything and we keep, it's, it sounds like a broken record, but keep riffing on the idea of like, everything is so interconnected. So um, <clears throat> poor sleep quality leads to other metabolic dysfunction and other health complications long-term. Well, why are you getting poor sleep? Maybe you're getting poor sleep because you've got low progesterone and like it's because you're at this phase of life where you're going through menopause and it's just like everything keeps going on. And maybe you're getting poor sleep because you ate the nachos when you went to bed. And so you've got and you drank the alcohol and you did all of these things where over time and like the, we'll shelf this one all together, but it gets into mental health, too, where it's, people start to have um, their their mental health might shift or change from what their steady state or the way that they felt before was because it's like, well, you're getting lower levels of sleep and you're feeling bad because of all these things physiologically that are happening in your body. And it's like, that is the interconnected web of all these things. So it's like having that insight to say, Hey, like this is actually leading to that. And like, here's, here are things that we can change. So like physiologically, we can't, we're not just menopause is happening. That's happening. Like that is physiologically happening. But what you can change is you can change your diet. You can change your, you can change the way that you sleep, the way that you exercise. You can start to um, supplement with uh, different hormonal therapies over time as you're like men and women, right? Because we know 
getting into testosterone, we know that um, depending on depending on the reason for taking something like testosterone, I think we associate colloquially, we think like, oh, somebody's supplementing with testosterone, like that's not good. What are you trying to get really big and strong? The idea is like, no, you actually, if you've got low levels of testosterone, you can have low mood, like it's really going to affect too high levels is when you start to get into things like having more what's known as like the bull aggression, right? So it's having balance, but you need to make sure that you are able to adapt and supplement as needed based on like what is happening in your own body. So it's not a, hey, this is happening to everyone. It's this is physiologically what works for you. And here's how we're going to personalize it. Yeah. When you talked about balance, um, I think that's kind of the the key theme in all of this. We, I mean, and we all know it, or we have some idea of balance that we grew up with or, you know, moderation and everything, including moderation. But I think understanding what balance means from a physiological standpoint is not something that we're traditionally taught. I mean, even for instance, um, we often talk about is flat blood glucose the best um, when actually our, our body regulates everything on a wave-like scale. And so it's rather than I I don't think thinking about balance is thinking about um, a flat line or an average, but balance is about being at the right level at the right time with the right pattern. So it's really more of a, of a shape or a, a pattern than a level. And testosterone is one that I think everybody knows about because it's it's funny and it's in the media and it's in sports. But you know, if you have too high testosterone, sure you're going to get muscular, but you're also going to shut down your HPG axis and uh and like. That's one of the common things that people talk about when they talk about uh, taking taking roids. But um, but andropause is a is a very different story. And andropause is about acknowledging that you know in the forties, you know, just like with women having these overall a little bit at a time declining levels of sex steroids, men go through the same thing, and it's not pleasant. I mean, decreased energy, um, decreased focus, decreased sports performance. Uh, you know, you start to get into, um, eventually prostate problems, uh, you know, sex and libido is all woven into it. And so the idea of, um, testosterone replacement, I think if done, uh, carefully up to the right level and, you know, eventually in, in the right pattern, um, would be tremendously helpful to, to health. You just can't go overboard and um, A, start giving people cancer or B, um, start shutting down the HPG axis by giving it way too strong of a signal. Um, so I think um, one, have you talked about like the the whole body is a symphony thing on on whole new level yet? I feel like that's a, that's an analogy that, that kind of helps everybody. You are the first is your analogy. <laughs> so take it away. Okay. Um, I think it relates a lot to what we talk about with, you know, how many sensors does a car or a rocket have? Um, but it also takes into account this idea that um, all these systems in our body are, are interconnected and tend to change in a coupled manner over time. And so uh, I think what we are at, at levels, especially on the research team and on the data science team, um, we're, we're doing something called network physiology, which is studying how different systems in the body change in a coordination, coordinated fashion over time and how that coordination falls apart in different ways during different kinds of disease states. So uh, basically, the idea is, um, you know, we might want to think of glucose as a, a silver bullet or maybe one signal that we could look at that would tell us everything we need to know, um, but it's not. It's more like I would think of it as like 
the first chair trumpet in a symphony. So if your body is a symphony and your trumpet is or is your blood glucose, then you know you know it's important. It's flashy. It plays good solos, and we need it. But for instance, um, it's not going to tell us if the bassoons are out of whack. Like if your bassoon section in your body is out of whack, you might be pretty unhealthy. But if you only have uh, your head trumpeter to listen to, you might not really know that there was something wrong with the bassoon section until things got so bad that you know she couldn't play her her first chair solo um, correctly. So the reason that we uh, that we need to measure multiple things in the body, even though they should be theoretically playing together all the time, like the, the chords within a symphony, um, is because those are still players with individual agency. So they should, you know, hopefully be playing all together at the same time in rhythm and in tune um, to keep us healthy. But, you know, still an organ system or a single output can start to drift and it might take a while before it drifts enough that it starts to pull other sections or other players out of tune. So basically, um, I think when we think of the body like a symphony, we can understand both that we need to be listening in continuously to the signals that we're uh, able to listen to, but that um, that in an ideal world, we would be able to like be a very good conductor um, and listen to every single player. And when we think about blood work, for instance, what we're really doing there is basically uh, listening to that head trumpet player play her C note for a couple seconds and then stop playing. So, you know, we'll know if she's able to hit that one note on time, but it doesn't really tell us how well she can play her solo. Um, so, you know, we need it, but there's, a, but there's a lot more that we can do once we have um, some continuous information coming in. You are speaking my language. I love this analogy immensely. Uh, because it all makes sense, right? So we're the conductor, right? Like we're the conductor of what's happening. We're, we're, we are in control of this symphony. You could have all the instruments playing in time. There's sort of like two things going on. All the instruments are playing in time, but we've, the, the wood section is out of tune. They're still in time, but they're out of tune. It's like, ah, the, it's fine. They're, they're playing in time. You could also have things be in tune, but off time where it's like, that's not working. And so you've got these things that aren't working the way that they should. And you want to have the symbiosis between like everyone to make sure it sounds like a symphony and it's playing really well and tight and with the right cadence and crescendos and all these things. But it's like, if you're off, if you're out of tune and you're off time, it's like, that's the long game of like, okay, well, this is what happens over years is eventually your whole, whole orchestra <laughs> falls apart. And next thing you know, your viola has got a broken string and you can't recover. And <laughs> that is not a good thing. So it's, yeah. I, I love the analogy, but it's like, it's so true. It's like our body really is a symphony and everything has to work in this state of symbiosis to make sure that we're singing these beautiful songs, painting the picture. Yeah. And I mean, we absolutely want to catch ourselves before we get down the line to when our blood panel comes in and it's way, way off the rails. Um, but I think this also ties back to what you were talking about, where, you know, how many molecules, hormones, autonomics get signals from the skin would we need to measure in order to have like a pretty good idea of what was going on overall. So you might think about as like, you know, how do we take one player from each one of the sections and give ourselves an overall picture of what this thing is probably sounding like? Um, and I think that's really the hardest problem. So we might want to think about, um, you know, in a dream world, what can we measure to take a look into what's happening in each one of these key systems of the body? Um, you know, the metabolism and liver function, the reproductive system, the thyroid axis, uh, 
inflammation in the immune system. Um, it goes on and on, you know, emotional state and, and motivation, things like cortisol or, or dopamine. Um, and we can imagine if we if we got enough of these, we think we would know enough to be able to either predict the information in the rest of the systems to an acceptable degree, um, or at least have you know a representative from each section that's telling us what's probably going on in the rest of that system. Um, but it's a hard problem. And I think one of the reasons to be hopeful is because in general, um, our body, especially our biological rhythms and our, and our homeostatic or allostatic systems are trying really hard to keep us in time. And that means that, for instance, if you have healthy blood glucose regulation, your insulin should be bumping along every few hours um, over the day and night, over the ovulatory cycle, even for everyone over the seasons at about the same time. And so I think those coupling constants, which we expect in the state of health to be fairly strong, and we expect to maybe get weaker in some very specific ways in disease states, those are the things that we have to work really hard to, to find out now. And, um, and I think the way that we approach that is starting to try to measure as much as we can. So hence, you know, us being the people with wearables and with our CGMs and, um, you know, maybe spitting in tubes every half an hour for fun. So funny. I love the... <laughs> The visual, I'm just picturing, it's almost like a union. You've got like one representative of the percussion section, one of the brass, somebody's representing Woods, but like all these people are coming together. That's a blood panel, right? It's like this like little union of like a trumpet with some legs and some arms like going forward to this line. And then we look at the line and it's like, they're representing the group of all these other things to say like, okay, this is going to give us enough insight to say like, is this section, is this like section of the orchestra doing okay is it sort of out of whack and if like the viola comes forward and all the strings are broken you're like uh we should probably look into that so love the analogy but it's, <laughs> totally. it's really really good and like super fun to to riff on all this stuff i think we're what we got to do is we should we should definitely do an episode on pregnancy that's fascinating um but i think there's so much more we can do as far as like digging into a part two around like, how exactly are we going to use this data? Uh, it's anonymous data as far as the way that we've got this data set from our members, but we've got so much insight. We've got hundreds of millions of um, health data points that we can look into. We can start to see some trends and some patterns. And we're in such an early phase of this right now. Where we're collecting this data and being able to dig out insight. But yeah, there's a lot we can do as we've looked into it. So maybe we should do a part two around like, what are you seeing? What are you seeing with our members? And how can we think about things? And where do we want to head if we start to make some of these adaptations to the insights that we surface so people can really make changes to their health? Because that's our goal is like, it's not just enough to collect the data and say like, hey, this thing happened. It's like, this thing happened. And here's what you can do about it from a personalized standpoint. So if you're up for it, it might be a fun thing to do. I would love to. Um, and maybe just a teaser before we end up here. That's really our top problem, I think, is to say we have all of the leads from um, from a bunch of different systems in the symphony um, playing their their C note. And we that's the blood panel. And then we have one player in the symphony, maybe that lead trumpet player, and she's playing her whole song. So how do we take all the things about her whole song to try to infer what might be going on in the rest of the symphony where they to play continuously? Um, and the way that we're doing that is we're, we're basically looking at the notes the melodies, the um, the speed and pattern at which she's playing, and and literally like a lot of the same signal processing techniques that you would use to look at sound are what we're using to look at continuous glucose data, and we're trying to find the features in that 
that are associated with better blood work overall, and also, um, you know, better, slightly more complex metrics that have been published that have to do with better glucose levels. So I think that's one of the, the best things about uh, having collected this data set and about being here is uh, we're going to get to share what we're learning through that um, a lot sooner. And I think the the teaser right now is that um, it doesn't just seem to be having in range glucose levels, you know, keeping your carbs low enough, walk enough to eat enough that you're that you're not getting big spikes. But there also seems to be something that has to do with the stability of when you eat, building on this field of time restricted eating um, or circadian patterned eating. But it seems like if your blood glucose has more stable rhythms, that also might give you a boost in terms of how well your blood workers is doing. So I think we're going to spend a bunch of time digging into these questions, and I would love to do a, a separate episode on that. Oh,